listening to the Canadian Streetlight Podcast with Aaron Hale and Mike Ferrier as your hosts. Subscribe to the podcast at canadianstreetlight.ca. Soli Deo Gloria. Well, welcome back to the Canadian Streetlight Podcast. And as a bit of a special way to kick off the new year, I was able to talk to a dear friend of mine from Western Canada in Terrace, um, Pastor Bruce Freeman. And, you know, I, I, I always enjoy talking with Bruce and just uh, gleaming from his wisdom and experience in the ministry, uh, I think for over 30 years. And, and so it struck me that, you know, there's probably many others out there that would be blessed by his insight and that I shouldn't be selfish. And so he was kind enough to uh, let me record one of our conversations recently here. And so I'm going to share part of that with you on today's podcast. And the remaining portion of the conversation will be uh, next week. And so I do look forward to uh, continuing to uh, talk with Bruce and, and have him on the podcast. And I, I pray and trust that he will be an encouragement and a blessing to you as he uh, has continually been to me. And so I, I pray you enjoy this episode to kick off 2016 with Pastor Bruce Freeman. What I've tried to think of is, in a testimony, what are the circumstances that influence a character as you're growing up? So I've tried to go from what it was like when I first remember. Uh, Because I was born in 1931, which was the second year of the Great Depression. Hmm. Um, Wow, 1931, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So here I am, almost 85 years later, looking at what were the circumstances that led to where I am today, which, what, would you say that's my testimony, or is it just the issue when I came to faith in Christ? Oh, I think it encompasses all of it, for sure. Yeah. Uh, I guess your point of conversion is is kind of a climax I guess in that sense as a Christian but no you can you can go into as much of that as you want and yeah and and you can take out whatever you want yeah (laughs) yeah Yeah. so um, I would start in 1931 not that I remember anything about it but still um 1931 is where my parents were, second year of the Great Depression, um, desperately afraid of not having work. And uh, when you look at how they eked out an existence in the Fraser Valley, it was so much easier than on the prairies, because on the prairies you were also facing the Great Drought. Right. And uh, consequently, my wife's folks faced it much harder than my folks. But still, it it is the foundation 
it laid the habits that we developed as little children. Mm-hmm. And uh, <clears throat> consequently, uh, that's where we start. Now, my parents um, both came from pagan families. They were the only ones, as far as I can say, of a certainty that came to faith. My mother's parents were practicing atheists, whether they actually claimed it or not, but no God in their homes, please. And that was made plain. So when my mother came to faith in her early 20s, it was coming out of that pagan background uh, before the Great Depression. Hmm. And uh, my father, who was raised in Trail, which is, well, um, the, the town in which they came to or where he was born is now under the Arrow Lakes because it was flooded by the uh, dam the Columbia River Dam. Okay. <clears throat> yeah. So um, my father, his, he was the only one who came to faith in his family. Uh, and he came first because of his uncle who lived in U.S. Minster. And he went in <clears throat> out of high school to learn some things about animal husbandry um, as a basis for a life direction, and there he was taken to a Baptist church in U.S. Minster and came to faith in Christ in his very early 20s and maybe late 19, 18 or 19. I don't know. Yeah. So that when they came together and they had been kind of courting through high school, <clears throat> that... Um, they had both now come to faith. They were baptized into Cloverdale Baptist Church, which was, uh, now it would be Fellowship Baptist. It was uh, regular Baptist of B.C. and Alberta then. And uh, that was the beginning of their home. And Dad started, and I don't know where other than just studying the Bible on his own, he learned to preach the gospel, but he started a mission in um, Lock Hill, which was a little crossroads, and that's all it was, was a crossroads out of Langley. And uh, during the war, we had to stop going there because gas rationing came in and there wasn't enough gasoline allocated for that kind of activity. Wow. So uh, <clears throat> after, from that time on, Dad taught us at home. And he had his sister and brothers who would come, who just lived down the road a quarter mile, came and he taught us in Sunday school, and we had daily worship. <clears throat> so that those were the influences during the Depression and first part of the war. War was declared in 39 when I was then eight years old. So in my growing up years, all I heard was war, war, war. And uh, two uncles, 
one four or five years older than I, joined the Air Force and both went overseas. Um, and um, one was killed and one wasn't. But I, in Milner, which is just out of Langley, <clears throat> at age 12 and 13, was enlisted by the local Ranger Corps, along with one other Boy Scout, to be their um, signal corps, because hmm. we knew semaphore and Morse code that we learned in Scouts. Okay. And so we learned to do war from a boy, little boy point of view. Yeah. You know, <laughs> yeah, our boys pretend, and you were facing the real thing. <laughs> yeah, and you know, not having any idea what it was really like, except what you hear, because there was no TV. <clears throat> Radios were very poor. I remember Grandpa Freeman demanding quiet when we were there because he was trying to hear the BBC reporting because he had two sons in Britain. Well, one fought in North Africa, then Italy, and then out of England. But um, he wanted to know yeah. how the war was going. Yeah. And that was chief in everybody's viewpoint. So when... The war was over, of course, we were the good people because God enabled us to win the war. That's the mindset, which uh, really wasn't that much more true than many German Christians, even German Baptists who fought against our own people in Germany, hmm. uh, pleading with God for victory on their side, I suppose, I don't know, but uh, when we came to Terrace, we found a whole settlement of German Baptists who came over after the war, just before we got here, and settled just out of Terrace, and it was known as a German Baptist settlement. Um, so here were people that we fought against during the war, now our next-door neighbors. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> And that was uh, one of the two Baptist churches in Terrace when we came, and they spoke German, which we had no understanding of, and they didn't understand English much better. Hmm. Uh, so where do you go? Well, yeah. um, so we started uh, in 1962, Uplands Baptist Church, along with another couple, Jim Yoder. You've probably heard of him. Um He's been involved in Southern Baptists from from the beginning because hmm. they and we were members of the first Southern Baptist Church in Canada, in okay. Vancouver. <clears throat> so uh, when we then came to Terrace, um, it was so different than the Fraser Valley because... Well, transportation up here, it took us driving time from Mission to Prince George was 24 hours. 
driving time from Prince George to Terrace was 27 hours. Wow. And that's how many how many kilometers is that? It's like around 450. About oh, okay. Miles. Well, miles. Miles, uh, okay. So whatever that is in kilometers. Yeah. yeah. <clears throat> but, you know, what were the roads like? Well, you come to the top of the hill and you look down and you see three ruts. Which one are you going to drive in? Yeah. And how are you going to make it through? Yeah. <laughs> so I didn't have the uh, little push-button four-wheel drive on your dashboard no, either. <laughs> yeah. never heard of it, except during the war and the Jeeps had it. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Wow. Um, and, of course, Jeeps were open-top things that were pretty miserable in most weather. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so when we came here, what was different? Well, everything was different because Terrace was kind of the offshoot of Kitimat that had now started. Kitimat started in the about 55, somewhere in the 50s. And uh, my sister was nursing in the hospital in Kitimat, and that's how we knew about it. And we came here. And Terrace was the place that people went to to get away from God in the Fraser Valley. Hmm. So it was a culture shock to come to Terrace hmm. because it was so vastly different from the Fraser Valley. Mm-hmm. Um, I only ever knew of two people who had been divorced. I had two aunts. Um one on each side of uh, our family who had been divorced. And uh, we'd never heard the word homosexuality until Robin was about 10 years old in school. Hmm. We didn't even know when he asked, what is it? We couldn't tell him because we didn't know. Uh, So that's your, Robin's the the oldest, right? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, He -hmm. he just turned 60. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Wow. So, uh, a vast change, oh, not just here, but the change started right after the war. Um, Interdenominationalism wasn't really a factor from my perspective before the war, because I was too young, I didn't know anything about it. But uh, PBI and Briarcrest were two schools that had high schools, and parents who couldn't keep their kids in line would send them there to get (laughs) saved and under control. (laughs) So when they came back to Mission before we had come to Terrace, um, the cry was, no doctrine, because we're, we're all one. And um, if you can't sing like we can sing, then you just don't know how to evangelize. (laughs) And that really was the emphasis after the war. Mm -hmm. They came in and came to Baptist churches with their singing choirs and just turned the people away from the Word of God to singing and performance. Mm -hmm. And that's when it started from my understanding of what we've got today in these praise teams and show, show, show. But that's how it started. Hmm. 
Now, maybe it started a lot sooner with Amy Semple McPherson. I don't know. But that's what I saw. Yeah. And now I see it so that what is worship? Most people have no idea. They don't know how to worship God. They think it's dancing or shouting or speaking in some erotic language or some silly thing that is anything but worship, mm-hmm. just pleasing the sensual self. Really. Yeah, emotional, driven, whatever uh, gives you the best uh, the best fix, I guess, basically, right? It's... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, Peter says there are two issues that subvert Christians and churches, <clears throat> sensualism and greed. And he gave the examples in First and Second Peter. And uh, you look at what happens in churches, it's one of those two, sensualism or greed. So when you look at somebody who subverts a, tr- a, a church, it's for fame for themselves or, or for some uh, immoral behavior. In Peter's and John's and Paul's day, it was sensualism, Gnosticism, Jesus is not God, or um, Jesus was not man, and flesh is evil, therefore it doesn't matter what you do in the flesh, you're okay as long as your spirit is cleansed. Mm -hmm. So Gnosticism was such a confusion of issues that, well, how in the world does anybody sort out from what is being taught by the Gnostics and the Judaizers, what really Paul was talking about in Romans, or Peter is talking about in First and Second Peter, or John, 40 years later, is talking about in First John and the Revelation and his Gospel. Mm-hmm. So <clears throat> they're all addressing the same issue, false teaching regarding the Christ, and sensualism and greed that are the characteristics of these false doctrines. Mm-hmm. And when you look at what they faced, um, we face exactly the same thing today. Yeah. Except now it's not embedded in all of the churches, their, their own standing denominations. But they're doing the same thing, teaching the same doctrines. So in a sense, while we have a lot more acceptance of immorality than we did when I was growing up, uh, it's just the full-blown example of what was going on undercover then, Hmm. but uh, found, uh, I guess, full-blown expression in the years since the war up to where we are now. And God will only take it for so long until he says that's enough. Mm -hmm. As he says to Jezebel in Revelation 2, I gave her time to repent, but she would not. And that's what he's saying now. I'm giving you time to repent. I'm calling you to account in all the things that are happening in North America and you won't repent, or you have time yet to repent. Yeah. 
I see is that God is calling us not to where we were before the war, but to come to a place where North America hasn't been since the 1850s, but it was false teaching then, false evangelism, uh, that was being taught then. There were some that were teaching truth. Whitfield, um, Jonathan Edwards, Isahel uh, Nettleton, but and their evangelism lasted where <clears throat> the evangelism, and I forget the name of the hotshot evangelist that claimed so many hundreds of thousands of converts, um, but when he went back six months later, they could find very few of them. And mm. uh, that's what our modern evangelism is producing. That is, you go back six months later and you can't find them. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No. No evidence. No. They got wet in a. They got wet, but that was about it. <laughs> and they're yeah. 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 Was and, that Finney it, or uh, Charles Finney? Or that was a was he later? Yeah, on, it was Finney. Yeah. Finney. Yeah. He was that radical, wild-eyed, slain in the spirit guy that claimed <laughs> hundreds of thousands of converts. Hmm. And Billy Graham tried to refine his program, <clears throat> tried to improve the uh, work of the counselors that they were giving right instruction when they came to the front, mm-hmm. but still at the last, uh, they could only find about 5% that were they considered genuine. Mm-hmm. Wow. Um, and that's what we were told in Terrace, um, back about 20 years ago, maybe not that long, when they wanted to have um, um, one of these mass evangelism things in Smithers, and they thought that we could drive from Terrace to Smithers every night for the meetings, uh, having no idea that it's 130 miles, Hmm. and and you'd be driving at night, um, so totally impractical. Yeah, on dirt roads. <laughs> well, yeah, but at that on time, we travel. had paved roads. Oh, they that, were, okay. Yeah. Uh, you see, Gallardi under W.A.C. Bennett, his goal was to have access from one end of the province to the other, north to south and east to west. Okay. And he wanted to get those two arterial highways in, which he did. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> But then we went to socialism uh, <laughs> after that with NDP, and that destroyed a lot of the impetus of what Bennett was doing. Yeah. But that was purely a secular approach. He wasn't a child of God. Um, and and the churches and Southern Baptist followed right along with the culture. We incorporated the culture into our churches and consequently, we've got churches full of people, many of whom aren't born again. Yeah. And uh, when we preach the biblical gospel, we get the backs up of those who aren't born again or think they have done something that merits them mm-hmm. receiving eternal life. 
and uh, try to re- redirect the glory to God and what has happened, then they take offense that they are feeling left out, I guess. Yeah, they want yeah. some of the uh, glory for what they had done. Yeah. And yeah. so um, for so then, now you, how long have you been pastoring there at Uplands? It's uh, over oh. 30 years, right? Well, I don't know. I, I haven't kept track of it. Okay. Somewhere, somewhere I've got the date on the letter they asked me to be pastor, but I don't remember when it was. It's yeah. kind of by default, you know, we couldn't get anybody else, so yeah. here I am. <laughs> you know, I, I trained. When I went to college out of high school at 19 years old, I knew that I was to go to Northwest Baptist Bible College. But my intent was to go and take one year so I knew how to teach a Sunday school class. Mm-hmm. And when I got there, of course, everybody was called into the dean's office and was asked, why are you here? And I told him what I wanted. Well, he said, young fella, you're going to have to make up your mind. This is a preacher's school. Oh. It's four years or go home, <laughs> essentially. And I said, well, all I know is I'm supposed to be here, so I guess it's four years. <laughs> so I got my bachelor's degree in theology. <laughs> hmm. <clears throat> which was good basic training. You know, the, yeah. the more I look at what we were taught by the men who taught us, um, I'm not ashamed of it at all. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, they they had more... They didn't have the degrees that they have in Cochrane now, but mm-hmm. I'll tell you, there was a lot more godliness. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Emphasis. Well, and they, when they actually uphold the inerrancy and sufficiency of the scripture i mean if that's central to the teaching then you know you almost can't go wrong as far as teaching how to to exegete the bible right and yeah enable your students to to come up with the truth through their own studies and not just tell them what they're supposed to believe but yes equip them to to exegete yeah yes So, really, while I never used my Greek for too long, I lost a lot of what I knew, which wasn't much to start with. But when you lose the little you did have, um, it's a struggle to get back. So I'm still trying to figure out Greek grammar. Yeah, (laughs) me too. (laughs) But when I look at the distinctive meaning of Greek words as compared to English words, the sloppiness of our language is just appalling. Yeah, and it's morphing all the time, too, so you can't yeah. really stay on top of it. So. Yeah. 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 So really, when it comes to any biblical doctrine, um, it the, the scriptures are extremely specific. Mm-hmm. If you read the Greek and know the Greek grammar, there's no way you can misunderstand the message, Mm -hmm. unless you don't want it and you want to change it. Mm -hmm. And that's what wolves do. They don't want what it says, and so they change the meaning, and it's called the allegorical method of interpreting the Bible. Mm -hmm. Popularized by Philo back in New Testament times, and that's where it started. So from there, it's morphed into what we see as so-called Christianity now, which is whatever you want it to say is what it says. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. 
So when you and I try to preach the truth, we get our tongues into trouble. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Now, I, I've come to have a little more appreciation for the hostility of some um, who don't themselves, from the Armenian point of view, don't understand the refinements of the biblical text because they've spent their time gospelizing. Um, They think they're reform, Mm -hmm. but they aren't. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, they're they're not evil intent. They're just sloppy in the way they go about it. Mm-hmm. And um, if all we're doing is trying to entertain people for 20 minutes or half an hour Sunday mornings, and we're not ourselves digging up the truth and keep finding what it really says compared to what we think it says on the surface. Not that we're inventing new teaching. It's just that we've slopped over for too long. Yeah. yeah. Uh, um, and so we have to be careful that we make that point carefully mm-hmm. and uh, people don't think we're really inventing new doctrines. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's one of the the beauties of preaching, you know, through books of the Bible, or, you know, expositorily, because then people see you working through a book, and as you encounter, you know, a difficult text, they can't accuse you of hobby horsing. You can just say, look, I'm just going through the, the word and and taking it one piece at a time, and this is what it says, and this is what I'm going to say, and then it's really between them and God at that point. They have to then either, like you say, allegorize it away or repent and uh adjust their their thinking so yeah yeah well i know um i was just uh even you know for myself i think really a turning point in in my life regarding god's sovereignty and salvation um really came in, in part through you i mean i've been listening to john piper prior to that and you know he has some influence like rc sproul and stuff but uh you had passed me uh uh, some some Paul Washer discs and I uh, <laughs> I remember listening to uh, the Ten Indictments for the Modern Church on the way back in the Pine Pass and uh, you know I think I got about halfway between uh, Chetwin and and Dawson and and basically it so overwhelmed me the the truth of what what he was teaching I had had to had to stop the truck and and repent you know of my uh, shallow view of, of the gospel. And, yeah. So, you know, you've been instrumental in my life, and uh, I'm grateful for that. But I think one of the things I really respect about you as well is that you, you know, you came to more the, uh, you know, whatever you want to call it, the reform position, the particular Baptist, or um, through years of, of difficult study and struggling, you know, in prayer, you didn't have the luxury of, of YouTube videos or, you know, podcasts or sermon audio to, to go and get a lot of this information. Um, you know, I think nowadays a lot of men in my generation, there's a temptation to be reform minded because it's popular. And, uh, you know, I have these big names who, who profess the doctrines of grace, whereas you really went through a season where it was not popular and, and you didn't even really know if, 
anyone else there was was teaching those things, right? So, um, well, I, I didn't recognize it when I saw it. You know, I, I believe that two of our professors at college taught it, but not as Reformed theology. They taught it as this is what the Bible says. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But the other who taught personal evangelism was definitely Arminian, and he was always calling people to make a decision, close the deal, close the deal. Mm -hmm. Um, And I didn't recognize them as two very distinct positions, but it became clear years later, yeah, it was very distinct Mm -hmm. positions. But these men who came through as Canadians through the war, through the collapse of the first school in Calgary and then starting another one in Port Coquitlam. Um, And it was Dr. Daw that was instrumental really in doing it, um, using the library left over from that one that closed during the war in Calgary. And I don't know if you could say it was reform. It probably was. But that's what Abraham came out of in Alberta. And um, you get the different streams of it. Um, And I I think that Pickford and uh, Daw were really reform preachers, but the the term reform wasn't used. I'd never heard it. Right, okay. It was just biblical. That's all. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. But in the interdenominational schools, principally it was a melding of Conference Mennonite and Mennonite Brethren. Conference Mennonite sprinkle and mix that with Alliance and Nazarene and so on um, with a goal to evangelize the world and it didn't really matter that much what you believed as long as you went out and missionized. Mm. And uh, if music was the best way to do it, that's the way you do it. Mm. And those guys could sing. I mean... They could sing. Yeah. (laughs) And the test of orthodoxy was how well you could sing. (laughs) I probably wouldn't have. That really was. (laughs) I probably wouldn't have done too too well then if that was the test of orthodoxy. Yeah. Hmm. But isn't that what it is today? The test yeah. of orthodoxy is how you have a worship team and you get the crowds yeah. in. Yeah, that's the test of orthodoxy. Yeah, it's not the way. Yeah, how how uh, electric of a personality you have, or you know, how well you can manage a a business <laughs> becomes yeah. the the requirements for uh, elders and not necessarily able to teach sound doctrine. So yeah, 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 we see that. Yeah. Um, now you even um I I think I I know I've heard the story in part because I know um you had Paul Washer there because like I know he's he references um in a few of the sermons I've heard a story about a man who he always identifies the place as near Alaska I think but it it was in Terrace right and and the yeah. man who came in who had been basically told he was going to die right or yeah that's right and he died. He did. Mm-hmm. So that was a revival service that you were holding 
Well, or I don't know if you'd call it revival. It was evangelistic. You know, mm. what we did then as an association, the, the first meetings we had which were evangelistic stimuli, I guess, we held them in Williams Lake Church. And Randy Lowe, who was pastor at the time, <clears throat> was responsible for getting in evangelists to teach us. And the first one that he got in that I attended was Richard Owen Roberts from um, oh that big school back east. Oh, I can't remember the name of it now, but I know it's Wheaton, Wheaton College. Oh, okay. Wheaton Seminary. Oh, okay, and, yeah. And he was from Wheaton, Illinois, Richard Owen Roberts. And I have some of his printed material, a couple of his books, but he referred to uh, Dr. Fuller, that is the old-fashioned revival hour, during the war, he remembered being, and I, I don't remember if it was Seattle or Portland, Oregon, where he was going to Fuller Seminary, Richard Owen Roberts was, and he, with a busload of young people from the seminary, went to see what was going on in Seattle during the war, as they had what he called a salvation factory. Hmm. And they had men standing on the street because this was the departure point for American forces going to the South Pacific to okay. war. Mm -hmm. And the goal was to get them saved before they went and got killed. Okay. And, <laughs> <laughs> and the way he described it was so vivid, uh, and I don't think I could do it really the way he did it. But what he said was they had somebody on the street, a couple guys who passed out tickets to go in and get a meal and a coffee and listen to a gospel presentation. So they got in there, and uh, they got this free meal and the gospel presentation. And then, if they showed any interest at all, they were sent upstairs to get the full shot to make the decision to accept Christ. And then they were saved and sent out to go to war. Hmm. And it was, he said, the whole operation took about 20 minutes to half an hour, where they just got these people saved and off to war. They went to get killed. Um, and um, <laughs> there was a few other things that Roberts talked about uh, because he said some of the girls who were sitting in the front row who proclaimed salvation were uh, the girls from the down and out part of town who were there um, uh, and I don't know if they really thought they were saved or not, but that was the impression. They got the treatment, too, mm. and uh, all got a ticket to heaven on that one short program. Yeah. Uh, and so he called it a salvation factory, a veritable salvation factory. Hmm. And that's the program that Finney used, Fuller used it, Billy Graham used it with refinements. Mm -hmm. But what did it produce? Well, a whole country full of pseudo-Christians. Yeah. You say something, you do something, you're in, and nothing can get you out. Yeah, yeah. 
and Southern Baptists developed it to a T. Which is sad, and we as Southern Baptists are party to it. But, you know, we can't undo what's been done, unfortunately. Right. But we can correct and preach the truth. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, without bitterness to the past, mm -hmm. really, if possible. Yeah. yeah. So, and it's, you know, I guess in spite of that, I mean, God does save at times, but... Yeah, I think, like you say, the uh, just the potential for deception and misrepresenting what regeneration is 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 so great that it often is is a false sense of assurance, which is really no different than I suppose you know what what the Catholic Church does in in their uh, in their Spring salvation methods. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> pronouncing them. Hopefully, say, yeah. So. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. It's you know I think one of the big things that opened my mind was looking at Abraham, looking at his call. Um, he was called in Ur of the Chaldees as a moon worshiper. There was no conversion experience. God said, "Leave your family and go where I lead you." So. He left his family and went where God led. He got to Haran, and there he waited for his father to die, and then he again took up where he was supposed to go and went to Israel, Palestine, Syria. And there, when he got there, he built an altar and sacrificed to the Lord. Whatever that meant to him, I don't know. But obviously, he did not believe God. He did as he was told, but he didn't believe God because it's very clearly stated in chapter 15 and verse 6 that when the word of God came to him in a vision and took him outside and said, See, Abraham, that's how many dependents you will have if you'll believe me. At 99 years old, you're going to have a son who will occupy this territory. And they'd spent... He and Sarah had spent all her lives from Ur to there trying to fathom what God was saying and even helping him out at times because God really didn't know how to get Sarah to have a child. Mm -hmm. uh, whatever his rational, irrational thinking was. But he could not be the man that God wanted him to be and produce the child that God wanted him to produce till both he and Sarah believed God. Mm -hmm. And that's when they had Isaac. Mm. Way past normal time. And I'll tell you, I wouldn't want to have kids now. Yeah. <laughs> you can have them, boy. <laughs> <laughs> it's for young people. I can't imagine Sarah singing a song of praise because now at 89 years old, she's got a son. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I hear people com complaining if they're 40 and they have children. Here's Abraham. <laughs> yeah, right. Over 100. Oh, it is it. Um, it's he 
Hebrews that I think uh, Hebrews in chapter 12 says that Adam or sorry Abraham um, you know trusted God but even seeing that his own body was as good as dead or something to that yeah. <laughs> Not a very, yeah. not a very glamorous description of uh, no. his condition. No. <laughs> but the amazing thing is that Sarah lived for another uh, forty years. She lived to be one hundred and twenty-nine. No, hundred. Mm. She lived another. Yeah, she was eighty-nine, and she lived to be one hundred and twenty-nine. Died. Mm. But Abraham then went and married Keturah and had another six sons. Yeah, I guess he didn't. <laughs> And oh, what a catastrophe they were! Hmm. You know, but uh, hmm. that—that's what we do when we do it our way. Yeah, yeah, we're all prone to it as descendants of Adam. That's for sure. Yeah, yeah. Hmm. Well. Yeah. Um, Well, I do trust that you were encouraged and blessed by the insight and just uh, wisdom that Bruce brings. And uh, as I said, this was kind of the first part of, of one conversation, so we'll pause it there for now. And I pray that you'll tune in next week to catch the remaining part of the conversation with Bruce and uh, just continue to learn from, from his years of experience as a pastor and uh, just one who seeks to see the glory of God uh, proclaimed and the lost sheep of his fold come to find rest in the shepherd of their souls. Blessings to you as you uh, also start a new year and I pray that uh, you continue to allow Christ to be reconciling men and women to himself through you this new year. Thank you for tuning in to the Canadian Streetlight Podcast. If you have any questions, comments, or perhaps a podcast suggestion or topic, visit us online at canadianstreetlight.ca. Soli Deo Gloria.